BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Back to this one's a doozy. I'm Kevin, and I'm Haley, and we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And we're doing it right now for the fiftieth time. Fifty, the big five zero. That's crazy. That is honestly, I'm very impressed with you that you have churned out fifty plus different stories to tell us oh my to gosh. tell me. Thank you. And you've also 50 different times withhold, with, withhold, withheld <sighs> telling me all of these different stories until we got on the mic. Mostly. This one, I feel like I told you a little bit because it was like such a whirlwind to like put it together. Yeah, but to be fair, I know better than to fully listen. So I just give you a little bit of <laughs> my attention when you tell me those things. And I go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Or... The little bit that I understand of that, no, that sounds like a terrible idea or whatever it is. Sure. So that's true. I'll be honest. I literally forgot what this is all about until I asked you what the title was. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So that's, that's where we're, where we stand. So it will still be a surprise. And there's so many details Mm, in here that I obviously didn't tell you. I feel like I only brought up like formatting questions like, is this more interesting to tell it this way or that way? Yeah. And, and I you don't offered any of those things. Good. Right so I'm ready. Yay. I'm ready to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible story. Parts of it. This is an well, awful story. Maybe I'm not ready, but either way, we, we always need to be ready to answer the most important question of the day. What are you drinking? So I made a tea, a hot tea, and it is stash tea. Mm hmm. And it is the mango passion fruit flavor, Yum. which the flavor is really good, but drinking it hot is a little bit off-putting. Like, really? I feel like this would be a great one to brew and then serve over ice. Like, it feels more like a like a Starbucks drink, you know, like a yeah. summery kind of drink. 
That makes sense. It's good, though. I really like the flavor a lot. I do recommend. Hmm. Very good. Mm -hmm. So what do you have tonight? Well, I am still working my way through this Christmas gift that I got of the Mm. On the Rocks Premium Cocktails Collection. And uh, this week, I'm trying out the Aviation, which is... fancy. uh, Yes, it's very much uh, a Manhattan. Okay. It's made with imported London dry gin, vegetable juice, and natural flavors. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I don't think I've ever had a Manhattan before. Well, now you have. Now I can say, I, I, well, I mean, I think that's what it is. I'm pretty sure. I'm fairly confident that those elements make a Manhattan. And if not a Manhattan, it's some other kind of martini that I don't think I've ever had before. Fair enough. So, yeah. On the rocks. On the rocks, coming in clutch with yet another interesting, well-made drink. That, uh, Good. I'm glad you like yeah. it. And we're not even sponsored. But I know. There, there, there they go. The free promotion that they get on our <laughs> on our podcast. Mm, oh, love well, it. Do you have a feel-good fact for us before we get into the uh, tough story for the day? Yes. So a preschool in southern Japan was designed to collect rainwater into a courtyard area. Children are then encouraged to play and jump and splash in the puddle with the let kids be kids idea at the forefront. In the drier seasons, the courtyard is used for all kinds of fun games, but overall, the emphasis of play at the preschool wins the day. Oh, yay. I love that. Yeah. They basically designed this entire building with this courtyard with the like express intention being no matter what season it is, mm-hmm. kids can use this area to play. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, super cute. <laughs> That's really cute. I've seen a bunch of pictures of it, and there's just these cute little babies just running through it, having mm-hmm. a great time. Oh, yay. <laughs> there's something wholesome about just yeah. kids being kids, just playing in the rain. Yeah, I think Japan gets a lot of rain, if I remember right. Mm. I'm pretty sure that it's like kind of in, in the same vein as like Seattle, where it's like kind of always like rain is always on the forecast coming up, you know, kind of a thing. I'm Fairly confident. I could be wrong. Japanese listeners, correct us if we're wrong or yeah. confirm. Yes, either way. We'd love that. We'll take it either way. That's a very sweet. We have a handful of Japanese listeners. Hello, Japanese listeners. Hello. Yes. That is a very sweet feel-good fact. It's just I cute like and one. simple. It is. Yeah. 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 All right, love. What do you have for us today? Well, I figured before we get in, get in, I thought that it's episode 50 and we need to kind of... I wanted this story to be one that would take a minute to tell Mm -hmm. so that I could kind of, as much as I could, fully explore it. And we have not talked about a serial killer in a while. And so I thought that's probably the route Mm. to go. So Must be time. It is unfortunately time. I hate these guys. They're the worst. But let's get going. Just a couple of hours after midnight on an August night in 1997, Chad Goetz, a senior at the University of Kentucky was up late studying in his home that he shared with a few friends. There was nothing particularly remarkable about the night. Chad was the only one of his roommates awake at the time, and he was just like casually sitting in a chair, studying and passively watching TV. When suddenly a woman came barreling through his front door, covered from head to toe with blood. Mm. She was screaming out for Chad to call 911, informing him that she and her friend had been attacked by the railroad tracks and that her friend was still out there. Oh my gosh. Deeply concerned that this woman would die in his home at any minute, Chad raced to call the police to get her help. 
As the young woman sat on the couch, clinging to life, waiting for help to arrive, her assailant was riding the railroads under the cover of night, plotting out his next attack. This is the story of the railroad killer and the incredible survival story of Holly Dunn Pendleton. Wow. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Wow. Okay. So content warning right out front. This particular serial killer was extremely sadistic, brutal, and violent in his attacks. There will be descriptions of murder and crime scenes, as well as mentions of sexual assault and alleged child abuse, possible childhood sexual assault, and all that kind of stuff. And so, if any of these elements are not something you want to hear about, we are looking forward to having you back next week. Mm -hmm. So, with that in mind, let's get into it by giving a short background on the murderer. Okay. So, the railroad killer was born Angel Leoncro Resendis. In Usacar de Matamoros, Mexico, in the state of Puebla, on August 1st, 1959. One of the many tricky things about this guy is that throughout his various crime sprees, he developed over 30 aliases, which made him very difficult to trace and track, but it also complicated like the storytelling mm. as well. Yeah. So most commonly, people recognize this particular murderer as Angel Maturino Resendez. So I'm just going to call him Resendez for the rest of the show, mm. unless they're yeah. like, yeah. unless I'm giving you like the heads up that they arrested him under this name at oh, some gotcha. point. Just yeah. Does that make sense? Yep, that makes okay, sense. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So there is not a ton of information about Resendez's childhood. Many reports cite the fact that he was dropped on his head literally immediately after he was born. Oh, wow. Which, like, that's a terrible, sad accident. And it's, you know, one of the many, many factors that people kind of believe made mm. him into what he became. Yeah, yeah. So well, we, just, we just had a story recently where a woman had a head injury and it made her murderous. Mm. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, there's something related there, I think. It sounds like. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. There is there is so much we have yet to learn in that realm of, you know, what happens when we have a traumatic brain injury, what, what actually goes on. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how far we are in learning about that, but it is a very, very compelling, very interesting topic. <laughs> so when Resendez was three years old, he also fell off of a building. There are very little details about this particular incident. I have no clue how or why this even happened the way that it did. But yet again, there's another physical accident for this guy at a yeah. very young age. Yeah. He was three. Jeez. So Resendez's mother never married his father. But when Resendez was around six years old, she married a man. And for whatever reason, she decided to send her son to go live with his aunt and uncle. There are conflicting reports on what happened at this time. Some reports say that he had a great experience with his aunt and uncle and that they spoiled him rotten because they had no children of their own. Hmm. Unfortunately, other reports say that during his time there, Resendez would suffer physical and sexual abuse Aww. at the hands of his uncle and at the hands of a known child sex offender in the area. No way. It's hard to know oh, which account sad. is true, which is false, if it's if it's like somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh. Um, but from what I could find, there were no formal criminal charges brought against either man, but it was reported enough to at least bring it up that there were two kind of versions yeah. of his story. Wow. From a very young age, people would describe Resendez as quiet and laid back and kind of a loner. 
he was also very small for his age. This unfortunately made him a prime target for bullies. Mm. At the age of 11, Rosinda's ran away from home and nobody quite knows where he lived during this time. The assumption is that he was living on the streets. But during this time, he was attacked by a group of bigger boys, and he was beaten in the skull with a brick. Oh, my gosh. An attack so severe that it left him bleeding from his nose and ears, which indicates a possible skull fracture. But at the very least, I mean, we can chalk this up to another traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. After this event, he moved back in with his mother for a short time. And then finally, at the age of 12, Rosindas was attacked yet again by a group of older boys who took turns beating and sexually assaulting him. What? So, as we've talked about on this show before, whenever we highlight traumas or tragedies in the early years of someone's life who goes on to commit horrible crimes, we are in no way excusing the later behavior. Mm -hmm. But all of this stuff is incredibly relevant to the actions and behaviors that Rosindas would go on to choose later in life. Mm-hmm. So just like a little disclaimer, I always want to be careful with mm-hmm. how I share these things and how like, I don't want anybody to read yeah. intentions that I don't have into sharing that. Yeah. Well, the way we've, we've always talked about it is there are people who have gone through just as difficult childhoods, mm-hmm. sometimes more difficult childhoods mm-hmm. and opted to not be not harm others. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, there's still no excuse. Yeah. But it does give some context sure. to maybe someone's mental illness or their predispositions or mm-hmm. um, anything like that. So we yeah, just, we, we want to be clear that those are not good reasons to then choose mm-hmm. that life. But it does give us an understanding of, you know, how somebody might get there. Yeah. Knowing that they there are people who have chosen to not do that. And of that's course. great. And yeah. we think that that's true for anybody. That right. that could be their life is instead of falling into that trap, they can actually do something positive with their life. Right. So it was shortly after this time that Rescindas ran away again, this time towards the state of Texas in the United States. In mm-hmm. 1971, he made his first journey across the border. Nobody really quite knows how he pulled it off or what he was up to when he would cross in and out of Mexico and the U.S. He did this pretty routinely, and the assumption is that this was the origin of adopting aliases, Hmm. as well as claiming multiple dates of birth and changing his appearance. He would take odd jobs working for farmers and other businesses that would offer work to immigrants or work under the table. Hmm. In 1976, he was caught trying to enter the United States in Brownsville, Texas. He was deported back to his home, and that's when people who he had grown up with started noticing a little bit of a change in Rescindas. He had become, Hmm. like, inexplicably religious, but in, like, a fanatical kind of way. He seemed to be obsessed with sin and with the apocalypse, as told by, like, the scary doomsday religious people. Hmm. Like, not quite culty because he was not following any particular religion as far as anybody knew, but it was like the same kind of zeal that is kind of typical of a cult person, of a cult member. Mm. So he, like I said, incredibly zealous, but he was still pretty laid back in about every other way. And so his family was not immediately concerned. Mm. Okay. Over the next several years, Rosindas would go on to commit crimes all over the United States, and many assume that he was also committing similar crimes in Mexico when he was there. Wow. 
Like he would just go in and out. He'd be gone for a while. He'd come back for a while. It's just all over the place. Wow. And I have no clue how he pulled it off. So I'm going to kind of rapid fire list some of these crimes off before moving on to the murders. A lot of these accounts are based on statements that Resendez would later make, along with some arrest records available to the public, just as a side note. So in the late 70s and early 80s, Resendez was mastering the craft of entering and exiting the United States, as well as traveling around the country and committing several crimes under various aliases. It's extremely frustrating that he had so many aliases and would change his appearance because every time he was caught and convicted of a crime, he was not able to be tied to other crimes that he'd committed. Mm. And so he was never really seriously prosecuted, nor was he able to be accurately perceived as the monster that he was kind of growing into. Yeah, It's also worth noting that he did not appear threatening in any way. He was a slender five foot six man who was polite and kind of shy and reserved. Nothing about his appearance screams serial killer in any way. In 1977, he was convicted of the destruction of private property and fleeing the scene of a crime in Mississippi, where he served two weeks in prison before returning to Mexico. He was then charged with Grand Theft Auto in Florida in 1979, and then a few months later in June of that year, he would be caught after breaking into a different Florida home, where he proceeded to burglarize the home and assault the 88-year-old man who owned the home. What? He beat this man nearly to death, and from what I could find, though this attack didn't kill the man immediately, he did die in the months following the attack, and so many people assume that there's some sort of correlation Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And like, would he have lived longer had this man never broken into his home and attacked him? Right. He also stole the man's car. So when he was apprehended and charged for these crimes, he was given a 20-year prison sentence. He served only five short years and was released in August of 1985. And then he was sent back to Mexico where he once again would not remain for long. Mm -hmm. Which I think that is one of the elements of the story that is the most baffling. Mm Mm-hmm is just how easy it was for him to come and go. So in the years leading up to his arrest, Rosindas had been sentenced to prison seven times. He'd been deported involuntarily 17 times. And he had also voluntarily returned to his home in Mexico countless more times Mm -hmm. when he would get caught. Wow. So we're looking at dozens and dozens of altercations that were not being tied together. Yeah. Or like correlated in any way. So yeah, yeah. During his time in the United States, Rosindas actually picked up English and would become very fluent, like completely fluent in the language, which was immensely helpful to him in finding work in the States mm-hmm. and like for his ability to fly under the radar and avoid jail time yeah. for his crimes. And so this is definitely when he used like the cover of hopping trains to his advantage. Mm. According to Resendez, he was, this is going to feel like a crazy left turn. He was an angel of God and he was needed in the United States to purge evil from the land. Mm, Yes. Which is such an eye roll. mm -hmm. But now we're going to start getting into some of his more heinous crimes. So just a little warning again, these crimes are particularly brutal and involve gruesome murder, violent physical attacks and sexual assault. I'm going to try my best to give additional trigger warnings when discussions of sexual assault will be brought up, just as a little side note. Okay. Yeah. So in 1986, Resendez would meet his first known victim. Sadly, there is no name available for this person. 
What we know is that while he was at a homeless shelter in Texas, he met a woman who lived there and invited her for a motorcycle ride. The two decided to stop at an abandoned farmhouse for some target practice, and he claims that during this time, the woman disrespected him, and he was suspicious that she was practicing some kind of black magic. Mm. And so without warning, he turned his gun on her and shot her four times, leaving her body in the farmhouse. Almost immediately after this, Resendez found this woman's boyfriend, who was also unnamed, and murdered him as well. He claimed to have disposed of this man's remains somewhere between Uvalde and San Antonio, Texas, but his remains have never been recovered. Wow. So I'm sure you noticed the mention of black magic. Mm -hmm. This is kind of where the weird religious, like, backwards vigilante justice thing Mm -hmm. comes in. Yeah, yeah. Like, he really believed... Well, he said he really believed that that's why he was doing what he's doing. Yeah. yeah, okay. So as soon as he suspected this woman and her boyfriend of black magic with no grounds, he said that he had to kill them. Jeez. So after committing these murders, he hopped a train and was quickly arrested on unrelated charges in Texas, where he was once again sentenced to 18 months in prison and was sent back to Mexico after serving a little less than a year of that sentence. What? He, yeah, he also had tried to apply for social security in the United States with falsified documents and he got busted for that yeah, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, would, I would assume so. So on July 19th, 1991, Resendez was in San Antonio, Texas when he met 33-year-old Michael White. There is sadly virtually no information that I could find about Michael and there is limited information on the murder as well. But at some point, the men met and were hanging out at an abandoned house when suddenly Resendez attacked Michael and beat him to death with a brick, leaving his body at the home. When he confessed to the murder later on, he said that he killed Michael because he suspected that he was gay. He thought he was gay, so he killed him. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. It makes me so angry. He believed once again that he was doing the Lord's work in this case, which is absolutely vile Mm -hmm. and disgusting, especially considering the fact that he was straight up like assaulting people, breaking into people's homes and stealing their things. And now he's escalated to murdering people. Yeah. So like, it's very weird that he feels like he can do whatever he wants But anybody who he believed was gay or a witch or involved in performing abortions were targeted. Jeez. So thankfully, Michael's remains were recovered. That is one positive, Mm. is that his remains were recovered. In the coming years, Resendez would remain in Mexico for longer stretches of time. He began teaching English lessons at a local convent in the city of Rodeo in Puebla, Mexico. And he had met a woman. Uh, that this is uh, Julieta Dominguez, who he eventually married. Hmm. And by all accounts, they had a great marriage, wow. which is very shocking and does not feel like it could possibly coincide with everything else that this guy does. Hmm. So he, during this time, would still come and go between Mexico and the United States. And when he was in the U.S., he would send money back to Julieta. Mm-hmm. Like to support her. And so she yeah. believed she had no clue he was doing this stuff. She believed he was literally finding work like in mm. a noble way in the US. Yeah. And was just trying to provide for her. That's really what she believed. So Jeez. between 1991 and 1997, his more violent crimes all but halted. 
He was described by Julieta and their neighbors as kind, laid back, friendly, and pretty much harmless. It's very interesting. I just feel like we see this a lot with criminals like this guy. There's so many that you see essentially have like a double life. Mm -hmm. Or like they're this like calculated, cold, heartless monster on one hand. And then on the other hand, they're affectionate and loving and helpful and kind to people close to them. Yeah. And I don't know as a human, like how you can possibly separate, like how you can have such little empathy that you can separate the humanity from somebody. I think if you're capable of that kind of love as well. Yeah. Well, and I think it comes down to what am I getting from this person? Mm -hmm. Because if his spouse was also a great spouse, Mm -hmm. she showed him, lots of love in the way that he wanted, Mm -hmm. then he was getting gratified in that relationship in that way versus any other relationship he might have that goes sour for even like just a hot second. All of a Mm -hmm. sudden it's like, oh, this isn't a good relationship anymore with this person, even as a friend or a coworker or whatever. Yeah. Now they must die. Like, Mm -hmm. which is such a jump. But, you know, if that's, if they just have a really healthy friendship relationship dynamic, he's probably a great person to have in your corner, you know? Right. Well, that, that, I think that's the element that's the most confusing for me Hmm. where it's like, if you're capable of that, how are you not also then capable of extending compassion, mm. empathy, uh, self-control towards other people? Yeah. Like that you are intelligent and emotionally intelligent enough, unless you're just completely faking it. But if you're emotionally intelligent enough to be able to maintain a marriage for a long time mm. and and like it's actually a good marriage, how are you then unable to apply any of those tenets to like yeah. anything else in your life? And you still like aren't willing to fight your urges to harm people. Yeah. You know, know. I don't know. So (laughs) the only thing that Julieta did feel weird about was that Resendez was becoming increasingly passionate about his religious beliefs. And he was so intense about how strongly he felt about all of the sinners in the world that she was concerned that his beliefs were fueled by hate Mm. rather than by love. Yeah. And like she was correct. Obviously on her assessment, she was also concerned that he was involved in some sort of like hate group in the United States. She didn't really have any like way to prove that, Mm. but she had a hunch that he was involved with something outside of himself. On March 21st, 1997, Resendez would strike again. In Baldwin, Florida, Resendez met a young couple at a train station. These two people were 19-year-old Jesse Howell and 16-year-old Wendy Von Huben. He said that he approached them because he noticed one of them holding a book on the occult, Mm. which who knows if that's even true. Right. And if it was just like, I mean, even if it was, it's like, can you just mind your own business? Right. Like, it's not that hard. So he approached them and learned that they were runaways from Illinois who had recently gotten engaged and were looking for work. Mm. He told them that he had recently gotten a job at an orange grove in Florida and invited them to join him assuring them that they would easily get hired at this place as well. So they all hopped on a train together. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly why this is, but when the train stopped in Bellevue, Florida on March 23rd, Jesse and Resendez exited the train for some reason. Hmm. 
As the two were like walking and talking, Rosinda is sort of like trailed behind Jesse. He then attacked him with a railroad air brake coupling, which is a long hose with a metal piece on the end. And they're sometimes also like um, kind of like surrounded by additional metal. Mm-hmm. So it's like equipment, railroad yeah. equipment. Yeah. He beat Jesse to death with this instrument. Jeez. Dragged Jesse's body out of sight near the railroad and then got back on the train with Wendy. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. If I'm just trying to put two and two together here, mm-hmm. he when he, by the time he got back on this train, I don't know how long this whole ordeal took, but he's getting back on this train. He's probably like sweaty, out mm-hmm. of breath, dirty, probably has blood on him. Yeah. So I have no idea if Wendy was aware of the whole situation or if he tried to lie to her and cover things up or or what he did mm-hmm. to like keep her calm. But it mm-hmm. sounds like they were not in like a like a formal train with a ticket. Like they were in an, yeah, uh, an were, unlocked box car. Yeah. They were freight trains. So she was probably just straight up, like just trapped. And she probably knew I can't yeah. get away from this man, which is just gotta be so scary. Yeah. We, we actually have uh, a friend and then we've also both experienced some people who were at one point in their lives, freight trainers. Mm-hmm. That that's how they, they they went on an adventure in their young adult lives. Is yeah. They went and hopped, hopped trains. That's just what yeah. they did. And so there's a whole culture to it and there's a whole like community around it. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of danger, which is, I mean, part of the adventure in some of those people's minds is that's, you know, they're, they're backpacking essentially through Europe, except for their freight training through America. Right. And, <laughs> um, just like that, just but extremely different, extremely different and <laughs> very dangerous. And mm. you're usually very dirty all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, like just the experience that I know what a life that, that would be fun. Done, yeah. <laughs> it would be fun until it's not. And then, then things like this happen and you go, this is all of a sudden very scary. <laughs> sure. But all that to say, I think there's probably a lot of this kind of stuff that exists on the road. Maybe not to the same degree, but like just that fear of like, okay, is everyone around me safe or yes. am I in constant danger? Right. Yeah. And who, who can I actually trust? Sure. Like, there's a lot of questions like that. I think that on, on freight trains probably need to be, need to be asked. Well, so. and this guy sounds from everybody's reports from people that like didn't know him, mm-hmm. that he was easy to talk to and he spoke perfect Spanish and perfect English. Yeah. And he was short. He was small, kind of unassuming. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure, and like you look at him and it's like, he's got like a warm face. Like he doesn't look like a killer. Hmm. And yeah. so I think it probably, probably is not much for him to smooth talk his way into someone trusting him. Right. So scary. So the train continued moving and these two exited at a stop in Sumter County, Florida. <laughs> Trigger warning. I'm going to briefly mention rape. <laughs> when they got off the train, Rosinda's quickly tied Wendy up, raped her and strangled her to death before disposing of her body near the railroad, just like he had with Jesse. But with Wendy, he actually covered her body with like a blanket that he found before he got back on the train. Oh. Which is just so sad. She was 16. And she trusted him. I know. Poor thing. They were, they were traveling companions. and I know. Gosh. Poor Wendy. Oh, I hate that so much. Me too. 
On July 5, 1997, Resendez would find another victim in Colton, California, when he spotted a man by himself near a railroad. This was a man by the name of Robert Castro. Resendez approached Robert and struck up a conversation with him. As they were chatting, Resendez kind of took stock of his surroundings and saw a piece of plywood on the ground. When Robert turned and began walking away, Resendez picked up a piece of plywood and beat Robert to death completely out of the blue, like totally out of nowhere. I couldn't find really much about Robert Castro, like as he was in life, Mm -hmm. which makes me really sad. But this was another completely senseless. Yeah completely random attack. Like he was just in the wrong place at the wrong, like the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And Resendez straight up looked for opportunity, not only to kill, but he saw everything around him as a weapon. He's used a hose. He's used a piece of wood. Like it's just, it's just as baffling. And that is something that is, I feel like the most scary about him is how completely random, like there's no victimology. I'll be talking about this later, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I probably shouldn't go too far down that road, but yeah, yeah. it's just a scary man. Oh. So Resendez is clearly escalating at this time. He's committing a lot of murders back to back to back in different states around the United States with no real victim profile and completely opportunistically. He finds a person or a couple, talks with them, convinces him that he's harmless and then uses whatever he can find nearby in order to murder them. Jeez. He then disposes of their remains near the railroads and then just blasts off to a different state on the next train. And so at this point, nobody is tying any of these crimes together. Right. And thanks to, once again, his fake identities, nobody is tying Resinda's the man to any single one of them either. Hmm. On August 29th, 1997, he would strike again, this time in Lexington, Kentucky. I have the most information on this particular attack thanks to a book written by one of the victims. Mm. And so I really want to do like a little deep dive into the stories of these two victims before we move on. So in June of 1997, college students at the University of Kentucky would meet in a chance encounter. These were 21-year-old Christopher Mayer and 20-year-old Holly Dunn. In the summer leading up to Holly's junior year at the University of Kentucky, where she was studying finance, she was out at a local dive bar with her friends celebrating her friend Annie's 21st birthday. So the dive bar was far from crowded with only Holly and her group of friends Mm -hmm. and then another group of male students from the same school, like over across the way. Yeah. As the two groups began to chat with each other, a tall, handsome stranger approached Holly and said, hey, we have matching toes. She looked down to discover that her silver toenail polish did, in fact, match the polish on the guy's toes as well (laughs) in silver toenails. (laughs) The guy introduced himself as Chris Mayer, who was also a junior at UK. The two got to talking and very quickly hit it off. They came from very similar backgrounds, tight-knit families, Catholic upbringings. They were both part of Greek life at the same school. And most notably, they both had vibrant, fun, adventurous personalities. The pair became very quickly inseparable. Yeah. Chris was studying lighting design in the theater department. (laughs) He was wildly artistic and creative and had a passion for the outdoors. Holly and Chris would go on outdoor adventures together with Chris at the helm. They would create art together with Chris's supplies, and they were absolutely smitten with each other. Like, so, so cute. Yeah. The two made it official, and the fun continued. 
During that summer, Chris had made his way up to Maine to attend a music festival featuring his favorite jam band, Fish. Classic. I know. I know. I knew immediately once you said jam band, I knew which jam band that was going to (laughs) be. I love that. (laughs) And you would, and I'm proud of you for that. So while he was there, he called Holly, and anytime she wouldn't answer, he'd leave her like voicemails, like Mm -hmm. funny little voicemails to like make her laugh. Yeah. And she would like play them over and over again and just like giggle. Yeah. It was really cute. (laughs) That's cute. It was really cute. So when he returned, he gave her a gift. While he was in Maine, he found a little ring that reminded him of Holly. It was a little purple daisy with a sparkly center on a simple, adjustable silver band. Mm-hmm. She referred to it as something out of a Cracker Jack box, but she loved it. It was like one of those like gives you butterflies kind of thing because he's thinking about me. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about me. So he got Aww, me my ring. And yeah. so every time she would see it, she'd be like, oh, Chris, you know. <laughs> Which is just cute. And he was like super thoughtful, like little things for her like that all the time. She also loved that Chris had many super solid relationships with women. He was very close with his mom and his sister, and he had two female roommates, hence the silver nail polish on his toes Mm. on the night they met. Mm. Okay, The women around him, like um, classmates and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, they would speak very highly of Chris in like the least like creepy way possible. Hmm. He was known for his fun and free-spirited way of life, but also for being super respectful and protective of the women around him. He was just like a good, safe person. Yeah. He was also six foot five. He was athletic since he was always outdoors when he wasn't creating art, but he was a hippie at heart, often walking to and from events with no shoes on. (laughs) Yes. You could spot Chris with no shoes. He also had one of those like necklaces that's like hemp and he had like a big jade stone. (laughs) He was like such a hippie. I love it so much. Yes. I've seen pictures of him and he's just like so adorable. So fast forward to the night of the attack. The two had a picnic planned for the next day, but that night they planned on going to a house party that was being thrown for new members of Chris's fraternity. Holly stewed over what she should wear. She didn't want to try too hard, but she still wanted to look cute. Yeah. Like she didn't, she wanted to look really cute, but she wanted it to be like effortless. Yeah. Which is oh, the this whole thing, the daily yeah. conundrum for women across <laughs> the world forever. So she went with simple corduroy pants, a white shirt with a brown belt, simple silver hoop earrings, her ring from Chris, plus a few more rings, and then a necklace with little pinecone pendants. And her favorite Birkenstock clogs, which wow. like yes. so 90s. I love it. That's Everything tied, about that is 90s. She was nailing ties the it. whole thing together, really. She remembers looking in the mirror, all smiles at this exciting season of her life. This was definitely the beginning of a beautiful and sweet relationship. And Holly was giddy to get to spend time with Chris that night. And can we just like for a minute... I'm, I've been, since I've been writing this, been wanting to get to this part. Hmm. Can we talk about how fun that season of life is. Oh yeah. When you meet someone and you're super into them and Mm -hmm. they're really into you right back and like going and getting ice cream feels like a fun adventure. Right. There's something special and sweet about those moments and also getting to know somebody. Mm -hmm. You're like learning new things about them, not just every day, but like throughout every encounter you're learning about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's and so they're learning something new about you. And I think there's something yeah. special about that too, is being like, you're constantly feeling more and more known by yeah. someone. Uh, it's just a sweet time. It is really sweet. So Chris pulled up to Holly's sorority house in his car. On his car, he mounted a megaphone on the top of it. 
and he used it to announce to Holly that he was waiting for her outside. Oh my gosh. He like called for her with her like full name. <laughs> Holly Dunn. Yeah. Your ride is here. So he's just like really fun. Yeah. Holly and her friends laughed about how fun and free spirited and hilarious Chris was. And she headed out the door. They went to the party, but shortly after midnight, things were winding down. And so Holly and Chris decided to head out and go for a walk near the train tracks where they planned to drink and watch the trains roll in. Mm -hmm. Chris packed up a six pack of his favorite craft beer into his backpack and they began to try to leave. Two of Chris's friends, Mike and Ryan, were also bored at the party, so they decided to join them. Not realizing that they were, like, totally cutting in on... Yeah, crashing a, a sweet... date, basically. Yeah. <laughs> they were, like, nice about it, but they're like, oh, no. <laughs> totally blocking is what's going on mm-hmm. there. <laughs> so as the group was walking along the tracks, it became clear pretty quickly that Chris and Holly were really wanting some alone time. Yes. And so Mike and Ryan picked up on that. And decided to head back to the house after about 30 minutes of waiting for a train. Hmm. It was a weirdly slow night with not a single train in sight up until that point. Like they hadn't seen one. Yeah. Chris told Holly that they should stay a while and just hang out. They talked about music and like the nature of creativity and like the outdoors. Hmm. And they just enjoyed being together. Like huddled close and sneaking a kiss from time to time. Just like so cute. After there was still no train activity, the two decided they should head back as well. It wasn't a long walk back to the house, but it was super dark, Mm -hmm. like completely black outside Mm -hmm. by the tracks. And so they decided it was probably like a safe bet to head home. Yeah. As they walked hand in hand towards the house, a man appeared from behind an electrical box. He faced them and asked, quote, where did your friends go? End Mm. quote. So he was watching them. You can watch them for a minute. He's been watching them for a while. They've been there for like over an hour at this point. He then demanded the kids to give him their money. Holly tried to make a joke about how they didn't have any money because they're broke college kids. (laughs) But the man was not amused. One thing about Holly's book is that there are so many moments where like she really latched on to humor Mm -hmm. to try and cope with everything that she was going through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's my hero for that. She, there were moments where she's like, I recognize that humor in this moment was not my, like not actually helpful to me, Yeah, (laughs) but like, I get it. (laughs) I get it. So. Wow. Hmm. uh, This guy was not amused by her joke. In fact, he only seemed to be like more agitated by it. He demanded them to get down on their knees. Chris sort of like nudged Holly to comply, obviously knowing something that she didn't know at this point. Mm -hmm. The man had a weapon, either an ice pick or some type of screwdriver. So they got down on their knees while the man tore through Chris's backpack. They offered the man their car keys, ATM cards, and anything else that he wanted, but asked him not to hurt them. Quickly, the man tied Chris's arms behind his back using the straps of his backpack, and then he tied Holly up with her own belt. So both of them have their hands Mm -hmm. restrained behind their backs. It was at this point that Holly decided to stare at the man directly in the eyes and attempted to commit everything notable about his face and his appearance to memory. Mm. Every tattoo, every scar, his height, and a physical description. She would go on to describe him as speaking perfect English, but with a slight Hispanic accent. He had olive skin, black wavy hair, a plain khaki outfit and eyes with no irises, just blackness framed by square glasses. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So she really, she really took took note of the detail. Yeah. She paid close attention. 
Man. She is so impressive. As we go, you're just going to be mind blown. So every time they would look at him or talk to him, the man would scream at them to shut up and to stop looking at him. He seemed kind of like wiry and that he was growing Mm -hmm. like more and more agitated. Chris demanded the man to let Holly go, that he could do whatever he wanted to do to him, but do not hurt her or touch her. As Holly worked to free her hands from the belt, the man dragged Chris by his arm on his stomach across gravel, broken glass and sharp rocks to the other side of the track. Oh, no. Holly worried that she would also be dragged in that same way. So she followed behind them on her knees. He then forced Chris onto his stomach and warned him not to move. He told them that he had a friend with him and that friend had a gun and he'd be back any minute. The man ran back over to the electrical box where he'd been hiding before and disappeared for a minute. During this time, Holly and Chris tried desperately to come up with a plan to escape, but the man quickly returned with ripped cloth that he used to gag both of them. He also Mm -hmm. tied their feet and pushed Chris down onto his stomach once again. So Holly, being an incredibly quick thinker, stuck her tongue out and blocked the gag as he was trying to tie it. Mm -hmm. So it was loose enough for her to get hers off. Wow. And she had also, she kept this hidden, but she had gotten her hands free. The man had once again disappeared from view for a moment. Wow. Chris noticed that Holly had freed herself and told her to run away and get out of there. But Holly did not want to leave Chris, obviously. I don't blame her for that. The man came back and told them that he just escaped from prison and that they would see him on the news. He then went into a frenzy when Chris once again begged for Holly's life and safety. He stormed off into the darkness for the final time. Hmm. While he was away, Chris did his best to reassure Holly. Quote, stay calm. Everything is going to be okay. End quote. This time when the man returned, he had a large stone that weighed somewhere around 50 pounds. He lifted the rock as high as he could and dropped it onto Chris's head. Oh my gosh. In Holly's mind, she'd remembered the man striking Chris over and over with the rock, but would later learn that it only took that one blow to kill him. And that since that memory was so shocking and painful and like traumatic, Mm -hmm. her brain kind of replayed it over and over in her mind. Yeah. Yeah. So she just kept, she really experienced it as though. Yeah. He was being struck over and over, which it's amazing. Our brains come up with stuff. Wow. When trauma is involved. So Holly, though she was in a total daze, remembered feeling an odd sort of peace and said what she believed to be her final prayer. The man then approached her and untied her legs. Trigger warning. I will be mentioning sexual assault once again, and then I will in a little bit be mentioning going like undergoing a rape kit. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give a heads up on those two things. So the man who I'm sure you've now, like by this point, you've got to know it's Resendez, mm-hmm. proceeded to rape Holly. As he was doing so, she tried to fight him, but was stopped when he stabbed her in the neck with oh. the weapon that he had earlier. <sighs> quote, see how easily I could kill you. End quote. That's what he said to her. Oh my gosh. Suddenly, Chris made a gurgling sound. Holly asked Resendez to move Chris's head so he wouldn't choke on his own blood. Resendez walked over and took a look at Chris and said, quote, he's gone. You don't have to worry about him no more. End quote. Oh, that's just so cold. I it's know. Heartless. Just. 
Yeah. Hollywood mm. later learned that the sound that she heard was what's known as a death rattle, which is like a final kind of burst of air in a dying person's throat. Mm. So there really would not have been any way for her to have saved Chris yeah. once he was hit. Yeah. So Rosendas came back over and continued his sexual assault of Holly. During this time, Holly was fighting hard and she was purposely digging her nails into him and ripping out her own fingernails in hopes of leaving a trace of her DNA at the scene in case he was planning on taking her to another location. Wow. I can't even believe she, she had to wear with all. She's so smart. She's incredible. Yeah. So when she realized that fighting her attacker wasn't working, she tried as hard as she could to humanize herself. She blurted out, my name is Megan. What's yours? He also gave her a fake name in response. She asked him not to kill her and told him that she has parents and friends who would miss her and that love her very much and asked him if he had friends or family too. He told her that he wasn't going to kill her. During the assault, a train came blasting past them. Oh. Holly was shocked that nobody saw them and that it was so unbelievably loud. And she also considered how frustrating and ironic it was that this was the first train that she saw that mm -hmm. night. Rosinda's told her that, he, once again, I'm not going to kill you. It's fine. You're going to be fine. I'm not going to kill you. So when the assault was over, he left her there for a moment before she asked him if he would pull her pants back up for her, which he did. Which makes me sad. Mm. She swore to him that if he let her go, that she would never tell anyone what he had done. And before she knew it, Rosinda's was laying her down next to Chris and covering their bodies with leaves to hide them. She thanked him, saying, thank you for letting me live before he disappeared into the night once again. She thought that he'd left, but he quickly came back, this time with a piece of plywood that he'd found. He then slammed the plywood into Holly's face and skull, leaving her with several deep lacerations on her face and skull, as well as a broken jaw and a fractured eye socket. Goodness. Oh she my gosh. I just can't even believe it. She instinctively raised her arms to like protect her head, but this did not stop him. Mm -hmm. During the assault, she, I would say mercifully, blacked out and did not remember the pain of it at mm. all. Wow. When Resendez was sure that she was dead, he left Holly next to Chris, not counting on her ever waking up or recovering from her injuries. Within a short time, Holly woke up and looked around. She was disoriented, injured to an extremely severe degree and confused, mm -hmm. but she was alive. Wow. She looked around and noticed a TV glowing in a window of a home about 150 yards away. So she began walking towards the home, barefoot and absolutely battered and bloody. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Without knocking, she walked through the door of Chad Goetz's home and told him that she needed help and that her friend was still out there. Chad called 911, who quickly sent EMS to the home where Holly was loaded out. So I just got to say, Chad is kind of an unsung hero in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Not only did he welcome Holly, who looked like she was straight out of a slasher movie, into his home. He also called for help. And he took care of her while they waited for help to arrive. He had her sit on his leather couch. Mm-hmm. And like Holly was like, no, I don't want to get blood on your couch. And he's mm-hmm. like, sit down, lady. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sit on the couch. Yeah. Like, I don't care. I can clean it. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Like, sit down. Wow. And he talked to her and did everything he could to try and keep her awake. Mm-hmm. In an interview I watched, he said that he was positive that Holly was going to die right there on the couch because she was in such horrifying shape. Wow. He said she was so covered in blood, like he could not pinpoint where the wound was coming, like where the blood was coming mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. He couldn't pinpoint a single wound. Wow. So poor, poor Holly. Yeah. She's so, just a total mess. And he's literally just trying to keep just whatever he can to, to keep her going and mm-hmm. coherent as much yeah. as possible. So EMS rushed Holly to a nearby hospital. The medical staff sprung into action and began the work of helping Holly's physical wounds, as well as performing a rape kit to gather any evidence that they could that might aid the investigation. Yeah. She was also given emergency contraception and STD testing, which luckily those came up negative. Okay. Yeah. Holly ended up receiving 16 staples in her head to close the lacerations. Wow. She was also stabbed in the neck. She needed to be treated for that. Her left eye socket was shattered and swollen shut, and her jaw was so badly broken that when she tried to speak, it sort of grinded and hung slack. Hmm. She would end up having her jaw wired shut after they reset it to ensure that it would heal properly. So she had like months of her jaw so wired shut that she couldn't even put a straw through it. Like it was. Wow. Yeah. Poor Holly. Ugh. So investigators were quickly on the case. Mm-hmm. When Detective Craig Sorrell and his partner came in and greeted Holly, she turned to him and projectile vomited all over him from the pain and painkiller oh, she was on. Yeah, She remembered being like really embarrassed, but he was super nice about it. Yeah. <laughs> he was like really <laughs> well, sweet good. about it. So he took an initial statement from her at this time and then would get a longer follow-up statement in the days that followed. The hospital quickly contacted Holly's family who were in Evansville, Illinois, and they actually took her father's private plane down so they could get to her as quickly as they could. He was like a private pilot, which is awesome. Dang. Yeah, that's a perk for sure. Yeah. So once she was stable, she asked her dad the most painful question that she had. Is Chris dead? Mm. Yes. Yes, he was. Holly was absolutely crushed by this and was immediately struck with intense survivor's guilt. Yeah. Replaying in her head over and over all of the ways she could have fought harder to free him from his bonds and save his life. Mm. Which I think that is one of the more devastating elements of a story like this yeah. is survivor's guilt. Yeah. Well, it's like, I mean, how, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah. And yet at the same time, all you can think about is what else could I have done? Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a very burdensome, very burdensome thing on top yeah. of everything else. Wow. I really feel for her in that. In the days and weeks following her attack, Holly wouldn't get much information. Nobody knew who her attacker was, why Chris and Holly were targeted, or where this guy was. She had made the guess that he had disappeared on a train after she was attacked, but since she blacked out, she couldn't really be sure. 
Detective Sorrell would remain deeply dedicated to Holly's case, but it would take almost two years of wondering and searching before they would get any answers. So for the rest of the story, Holly is going to kind of be like interwoven as we go. But for now, let's keep moving on to some of the other elements of this story. Okay. Okay. In the meantime, Resendez was actually laying low for a minute. Hmm. It was believed that, that like at this time he returned home to Mexico with Julieta. So that could be an explanation, but some people have speculated about his reasons for waiting a while before he struck again. It seemed with this case that his MO had changed. Hmm. He wasn't striking totally vulnerable people. Hmm. Like Chris was a big guy. Yeah. Holly was also taller than him. Holly's five, eight. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I mean, he had a weapon, but like it's, it seemed like a very bold attack. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, just as outsiders looking in at it. So yeah. it seemed as though maybe his MO had changed. He wasn't, you know, it was like, these aren't like drifters. Right. He's or, looking for a challenge, basically. That's kind of what it seems yeah. like. Mm. And so he would actually wait for a while. He would strike again on October 2nd, 1998. He hopped off a train in Hughes Springs, Texas, and began to look around. It was at this time that he began striking in homes near railroads. Oh, wow. Which is, to me, opinion, extra scary. Yes. Into people's homes. Just showing up. Yeah. Oh, he wow. just would like lurk in the shadows and scope out homes. And he would say that he was targeting people who he believed were committing some egregious sin. But really, he was attacking people who were alone or elderly and therefore mm-hmm. less able to be like less likely oh, to be able to defend geez. themselves. Oh, so just a punk. Yeah. It's just gross. I hate that. So at this time, Hugh Springs had a small tight knit population of around 2,500 people. It was one of those places where everyone knew everyone and people were really great about checking on their neighbors and helping each other out. When Resendez descended on this unsuspecting town, he found a small brick house 50 yards away from the railroad and inside 87-year-old Leafy Mason laid asleep in her bed. Leafy. Leafy. Leafy Mason. Isn't that the cutest (laughs) name? That is a cute name. Resendez justified this particular murder by saying that he targeted this home because it radiated evil. That's so dumb. Yeah. Just, oh my gosh, I roll so hard. I know. He snuck into an unlocked window at the back of her home, grabbed her vintage iron, and bludgeon sweet leafy to death in her bed. Jeez. Just a little. She was uh, almost 90 years old. Yeah. Leafy was a pillar in her community. She was known for her boisterous and fun personality and for her love for her sister, Vergie, who was mentally disabled and lived in a care home. Mm. When Leafy's neighbor arrived to pick her up to go visit her sister the following day, so October 3rd, Leafy didn't come to the door which was very out of the norm for her. Leafy was always on time for everything. Hmm. And Leafy went to visit her sister every single day at the same time without fail. Hmm. Her neighbor immediately knew that this was odd, so she called police who came in to check on Leafy, and that's when she was discovered deceased in her home. Wow. (sighs) Everyone who knew her believed that, even though she was caught off guard by her attacker, that she was the kind of tough old gal to fight back. Mm-hmm. After she was murdered, Resendez made himself a snack in her mm-hmm. home. He ate her food. Wow. Covered Leafy with a blanket. 
stole a few things from her home, and left. It would be a long time before any viable leads would pop up in Leafy's case, but initially they believed that Leafy had to have known her attacker because it seemed so personal given how brutal it was. Yeah. So, because that is not typical at all to have such a frenzied, Mm -hmm. brutal attack that's totally random. Right. So, on December 10th, 1998, Resendez wound up in Carl, Georgia. As soon as he got there, he immediately went on the hunt for his next victim. It was then that he discovered 81-year-old Fanny Whitney Byer, who was outside in her yard. Resendez oh saw her and snuck into her unlocked home and waited for her to come inside. When she did, he killed her with a single blow to her head using either a tire iron or a tire rim that he'd found outside. Later on, her neighbor had gone to check on her, which was the norm. Like, she lived alone, but a lot of her neighbors were really great about checking in on her a couple Uh times a day, whether she was outside and they just, like, would talk for a minute or inside by herself. So when a neighbor went to check on her and she didn't answer, the neighbor immediately called police who discovered Fanny deceased in her home. Initially, another couple was charged with her murder, but charges were dropped when Resendez later on would confess to her murder and was able to give details that were never released to the public. Mm. So he definitely did it. Yeah. A week later, on December 17th, 1998, Resendez targeted yet another victim in West University Place, Texas, which is kind of like an affluent suburb in Houston. Yeah. Texas. So this was 39-year-old Claudia Benton. Claudia Benton was a pediatric neurologist and researcher at the Baylor College of Medicine, who just so happened to have lived near the railroads. Oh, my gosh. Claudia's husband, George, had just left for a trip to Arizona with their preteen twin daughters. And so Claudia was all alone in their home. On this night, Claudia was up late preparing for an upcoming talk that she would be giving. And Resendez had seen her through the window and waited for his opportunity to attack. After she went to bed, he snuck in through the garage grabbed a two-foot bronze statue from Claudia's home and bludgeoned her with it. Good grief. He also sexually assaulted Claudia as she was dying and stabbed her repeatedly with a knife from her kitchen. He continued by ransacking her home. He made himself a snack. He opened Claudia's daughter's Christmas gifts that had been wrapped and placed under the tree. And then he stole a bunch of valuables from the home as well as the family's red Jeep out of their garage, which would be found a few days later abandoned at a motel near railroad tracks. Once again, this guy sucks. Yeah. This is like, he, he straight up like the worst. We, well, we've talked about this in the past about people who, uh, they make claims about, uh, an attacker. And the claim is that this person is this and this and this and this and this. And it's like, okay, inevitably you get to the point where this is like one of the worst people on the planet. And he is this guy actually did all of those things. Yeah. This is like, he is a top tier. Worst of the worst. Worst of the worst. And that is not a compliment. No. That is like just disgusting. And yeah. Yeah, so by all accounts, Claudia was an incredible, brilliant, and selfless woman who was working hard to bring goodness to the world. 
And before she even had the time to react, this monster stole her life from her and Mm. stole her from everyone who loved her so much. It's just like so frustrating. He justified this crime by pointing out that there were medical journals and magazines in her home. And so Dr. Benton was obviously performing abortions and experimenting on fetuses. And so she had to be stopped. Good grief. He wouldn't know that before breaking into her home. Like He's just making stuff up. He just makes stuff up. This is so dumb. Just, dude, just grow up. Yeah. Officers would later describe the state of her remains as terrible overkill. Making note of the fact that she was found face down with her head partially wrapped in a plastic bag and her upper body wrapped in blankets. The knife that he'd stabbed her with was found resting on a pillow nearby. Her arm had been broken in the attack and she had multiple skull and facial fractures. So this was just like, once again, so completely Mm -hmm. random and brutal. Claudia had obviously fought him based on defensive stab wounds on her hands and arms, but Resendez was so ruthless that she was not able to survive his frenzied attack. Mm -hmm. The good news is that he was sloppy this time. He left fingerprints behind at the scene, along with prints that they were able to match in Benton's Jeep when they recovered it in San San Antonio. Okay, so they're now able to connect some things, which is huge. Huge. This was like a major break. They were able to identify the prints as belonging to a Mexican citizen. And when the prints were sent to local, state, and federal agencies, it was learned that this man had a rap sheet a mile long and that it was obvious that he'd been committing crimes under various aliases. Mm. As the prints were sent to other agencies across the United States, this would you know, paint a clearer picture yeah. of yeah. how widespread this man's crime spree truly was. Totally. I mean, he was in, he was all over the place. Wow. Yeah. In January of 1999, Harris County police issued a warrant for Resendez's arrest, but not on any murder charges. They wanted to bring him in on burglary charges while they continued to collect more and more evidence mm-hmm. that would link Resendez to Claudia's murder. Yeah. Which makes sense. That's the right way to do it. Yeah. That's, totally. That's what it is. And for for anybody who's unaware of how American the American legal system works, is if you bring somebody in on a charge and you don't have enough evidence for that charge, uh, that can actually be detrimental in the long run. Mm-hmm. You can't recharge them with something a second time unless there's absolutely new evidence. Mm-hmm. And it just gets to be hairier and hairier the more that you go. That's a really fast overview and there's more details to all that, but that's basically it. So that it was really smart of them is Mm -hmm. what I'm saying Mm -hmm. to book him on something that they for sure have solid evidence on while they're collecting other evidence that can be added later. Yes. So huge in all the things that we've said in some episodes about some uh, law enforcement officers and their maybe not so great plans and strategies and practices. That is one that is should be applauded because there's a lot right. of, of just smarts in that. Well, and some of the stuff from that he'd stolen from the home would be also found later on, where it's yeah. like this is clearly Claudia mm. Benton's yeah. Yeah. ivory. Like wow. very specific things from a collection that he'd yeah. stolen and jewelry hmm. that she has been seen in photos with and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it was like, as they were going, they were able to tie him very wow. directly to the case. So yeah. it was actually during this time that Resendez's wife had their baby. Hmm. They had a daughter named Lyria. Okay. So I just really feel bad for Julieta. 
Yeah. She just had no she idea. Has no idea. Right. And poor Laria having well, to grow up with that. Also, even, Laria is such a beautiful name. Yeah. Even just, just let's just for for a moment consider what if Julieta did know? What if she was aware that he was doing certain things? Mm-hmm. She's still a victim in the case mm. that, like, we, we've already seen what this guy is capable of doing. Like, if she was aware, that would be horrifying. Yeah. And she's not benefiting from that in no. any way. No. So, like, I, and I, I'm only suggesting that, not because I actually think that she would know, but to make the clear point that because she doesn't know, mm-hmm. she is even that much more of, of a, a victim. victim. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Mm. Totally. Lyria absolutely did not know. Yeah. No way thing. that she could. Yeah. So within just a few short months of his daughter's birth, Resendez was back on the prowl once again. Resendez hopped off of a train in Weimar, Texas, and began scanning the area. Near the tracks was a church called the Weimar United Church of Christ. Next to the church building was a parsonage, which is where pastoral staff will sometimes mm-hmm. live. So they're like right on the property of the church. And so yeah. they're really available totally. you know, to their yeah. people. So living in this parsonage was the pastor of the church, Norman Skip Cernick, or Skip as he preferred to be called. <laughs> And he lived there with his wife, Karen. Wow. Pastor Skip, huh? No, he didn't want Pastor Reverend. Oh, he just he, wanted Skip. He just liked being called Skip. I like that he even better. Did. Skip <laughs> is an angel. Wow. You're going to love him. Yeah. So Skip was known for his vibrant and steady leadership in his church and in his community. He absolutely loved his job mm. and made Sunday mornings a fun time for adults and kids in the congregation. He loved singing along with his church and would look for ways to get little ones in attendance involved. Wow. They also put on little productions of Bible stories and he would always play the villain. <laughs> so the kids would get to like oh vanquish gosh. the villain and yeah. he'd be like, no, it's like super <laughs> cute. His congregation absolutely loved him and Karen so much. So I'll talk a little bit more about them in a second. But on May 1st, Skip and Karen were sleeping in their home. It was a Saturday night, and Resendez snuck into the parsonage through a rear door near the church parking lot. Using a sledgehammer that he'd pulled from the Cernic's tool shed, he bludgeoned them both to death in their bed. Oh, no. The next morning, the United Church of Christ was waiting for services to begin, but Skip and Karen were nowhere to be found. A church elder decided that he was going to go check on them, wondering if maybe they overslept or if there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. He entered the parsonage and discovered the Cernix had been murdered. He ran back over to the church and informed the congregation that there was a serious emergency involving Skip and Karen. And so they quickly called police to the scene. Skip would have celebrated his 47th birthday that day. Oh my gosh. Police arrived on the scene to discover that their home had been trashed and both of their skulls had been smashed with their own sledgehammer. Karen had also been sexually assaulted post-mortem. Their vehicle and several items from their home had been stolen, but this vehicle was recovered a couple of weeks later near San Antonio by a railroad track. Of course. So Weimar is a small town, kind of like Hughes Springs. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew everyone, but this made it kind of like all the more special when Skip and Karen came to town. Mm. Karen was a biochemist when she and Skip met each other. She's a cool lady. Yeah, She took on the role of pastor's wife with immense grace. And when they moved to Weimar for the UCC job, Karen made their presence known by planting flowers all over the city 
and by starting a church garden on their property, like a Hmm. huge garden. Yeah. Skip and Karen would start a program in their church called Caregivers, where members of the congregation were ensured that someone would come and check in on anyone who may have needed it. They also headed up several community projects, from regular food drives to the Adopt a Flower Bed program. Oh my gosh. And everyone in Weimar who came in contact with the Cernix very quickly loved and respected them. Yeah. Known for their compassion above all else, the Cernix were an irreplaceable, beautifully kind couple. Wow. Skip offered marriage and general counseling and many members of the church and of the greater Weimar community would receive counseling from him. Wow. These sessions were not like run of the mill, one size fits all kind of care. But Skip literally knew and cared so deeply for each person that his counseling skills were needed for. So everybody who came in got like custom made just for you. Personal. Personal care, Hmm. which is priceless. Yeah. Really. That's so cool. Wow. People in the community were so blessed by the Cernix, but their brutal murder was absolutely devastating to the entire community. So there's actually a really great article that I found about them that I'm going to link in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about them, you should read that. So the murder of the Cernix was very quickly tied to Claudia Benton's murder through DNA left at both scenes being compared and then matched. Mm -hmm. This is when alarm bells went off in Detective Sorrell's head back in Kentucky. Looking at the nature of the crimes, it felt like the attack on Chris and Holly had so many similarities to the murders in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so... At his absolute persistence, and after being declined multiple times, Sorrell was able to convince law enforcement in Texas to send DNA samples from their crime scenes so that they can be compared with DNA collected from Holly after she was attacked. Wow. They told him no a bunch of times, and he would not let go. He literally drove to Texas and was like, you have to do this. So this guy's like an actual hero. Yes. Yes. Wow. I'm very proud of him. So, lo and behold, the samples were a match. Sorrel, who had developed a deep care for Holly and her family over the last more than year and a half, was absolutely elated to be able to go to Holly and tell her that they have a name. Rafael Resendez Ramirez, Hmm. which was one of his aliases. Yeah, yeah. He would quickly be dubbed by the media as the railroad killer once these connections were made as well. In June of 1999... I think it was June 1st, Resendez was arrested in New Mexico. And immigration authorities ran a background check on him only to discover nothing. He was once again using an alias. Oh my God. And since his fingerprints and rap sheets were not available everywhere in the United States at this point, he was simply deported back to Mexico. Oh my gosh. Within three days of being deported, Resendez yet again snuck into the United States to continue mm-hmm. his murder spree. Man. On June 4th, 1999, Resendez made his way to Houston, where he killed another woman. Hmm. 26-year-old Nomi Dominguez was sleeping in her apartment that just so happened to have been near a railroad. He broke into her home and killed her with a pickaxe while she slept, and he also sexually assaulted her. When he later confessed to her murder, he said that he chose her because he found pro-abortion literature in her home. This is... Absolutely untrue because Nomi was a strict Catholic and was not even pro-abortion. So he 100% oh made gosh. that up. Like she was like demonstrably not pro-abortion. <sighs> yeah. And so like if you're going to make that claim, yeah, maybe don't be so dumb because right. she straight up be compl- was not. Just making crap up. Yeah. yeah. 
She was found the next day on June 5th by her brother, Alejandro. Oh, man. She was covered by a quilt that her mother had made for her out of old sentimental articles of clothing. Gosh. Nomi was an elementary school teacher at Benjamin Franklin Elementary and was pursuing her master's in elementary education at the time of her murder. Nomi was known by everyone who loved her for her passion for life and for teaching. She absolutely adored children and was so excited to be pursuing her master's. Eventually, when a new elementary school was built in the area where Nomi had taught, it was actually named Nomi Dominguez Elementary, making it the first school in the district to be named after a Mexican-American woman. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. On the same day in Dubina, Texas, 73-year-old Josephine Convica was murdered in her sleep at her farmhouse home by a pickaxe. Oh, my gosh. And when she was found, the pickaxe was still firmly impaled in her forehead. Investigators would later discover that there was blood from Nomi Dominguez on the pickaxe found embedded in Josephine's skull. Yeah, I, I was going to ask as if there so was a pickaxe. Very quickly, yeah. very quickly tied Resinda's mm-hmm. to this case as well. Yeah. So Josephine, she was a widow living alone. She was a doting mother and grandmother to six children at the time of her murder. It's super important to note that Josephine's home, where she had lived her entire life, was less than a mile from railroad tracks and less than four miles from Weimar, where the Cernics were killed just days before. Oh, wow. And so this like previously quiet, safe little area was being held in place by absolute terror. Yeah. Like there's a raging killer on the loose who has no scruples. He was attacking people with no similar victim profile in their homes. Right. This guy was like the boogeyman. Like, I think one of the investigators on the case ended up saying like, he was the boogeyman. Yeah. Well, he's just showing up people's houses. Like, yeah, this is. So the thing that kind of stood out about this particular murder was that Rescinda's left something behind kind of like as a taunt. Oh, he had found and set up a toy train set that belonged to Josephine's grandchildren. And he set it up next to an article about other Texas murders that he'd committed. So like at this point, he's very confident, like that he's a step ahead of everybody. Right. And like, sure, maybe right now you're a step ahead of people, but like now people are putting it together. So why taunt now? Yeah. Also, this is a grandmother. Like, what's wrong with you? I do not get it. So at this point, the media was starting to pick up the story and starting to kind of go a little nuts with it. America's Most Wanted did a piece that actually featured Holly with her face and voice changed to protect her safety, Mm -hmm. urging the public to be on the lookout. Resendez was also placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, knocking Osama bin Laden off of the list during this time. Wow. So like, this is, and this serious. is like the, the you said this is like 1999. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's not a nobody at that point. Right. So this is a pretty serious ordeal. Yeah. Wow. So hmm. while he was hiding out in his home in Mexico, Resendez received a call from someone who is still unknown to this day. He would ne- and he also never told Julieta who it was. Hmm. So it was at this time that he told Julieta that he needed to leave because he was like wanted on a burglary charge. And so he needed to run away and hide for a minute. Wow. And so he made his way back to the United States. Of course he did. Yeah. What else would he do? So instead of hanging out in Texas or in other areas in the South, this time he made his way to the town of Gorham, Illinois, 
Uh, this was June 15th. Wow. So he, he made a pretty serious trek up to yeah. Illinois. Yeah. Hmm. The home that he targeted this time was right next to railroad tracks. And inside of the home was 80-year-old George Morber Sr., as George left his home in his car, Rescindas used that as an opportunity to sneak into George's home where he waited for him to get back. When George returned, Rescindas attacked him, tying him to a chair. He then stole George's shotgun and shot him in the back of the head with it. Jeez. Within oh. a short time, George's daughter, Caroline Frederick, who lived a few houses over, had arrived to come check on her dad. It was pretty routine for her to come over and help him around the house or mm -hmm. bring him food or just to catch up. Sure. Like they were very close. When Caroline arrived, Rosinda's attacked her as well, beating her with her father's shotgun oh. so badly that the gun broke in two pieces. Oh my gosh. He also sexually assaulted her. Caroline was only 51 years old. Oh my gosh. 51. He then made himself something to eat and then stole a few things and then Caroline's truck, which he later abandoned before returning to Mexico once again. Shortly after being placed on the 10 most wanted list, Rosindas's half-sister, Manuela, who lived in New Mexico, saw his photo and was contacted by a member of the Texas Rangers. I think this, his man's name was Drew Carter, mm, I believe. Okay. So concerned that her brother would kill again or that he would be killed by police if he was to get caught in the act, Manuela agreed to help set him up for police on the condition that they wouldn't kill him when they apprehended him and that when he was in prison that he would receive mental health services. Mm. Wow. And so on July 12th, 1999, she had convinced him and Rosinda surrendered to the Texas Rangers near the border and was promptly charged with capital murder as well as charges on eight other murders. He wow. would later confess to more. Wow. It's believed that he's connected to upwards of 23 murders in the United States and potentially even more down in Mexico, but that has yet to be proven. That is a crazy number. That is an insane number. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, the, like famous serial killers that people talk about regularly. And I, I feel like most of them are like, you know, maybe a dozen. Yeah. Which is you still an, an insane still, amount. Yes. I'm but not 23. saying that. To, that's, that's, that's just like what I'm saying is 23 is a lot. Well, and there are other murders oh. in Mexico that have a lot of similarities oh to the gosh. murders that he is known to have committed. Yeah. So he could be in, Double that, triple that. Who knows? Who, yeah, exactly. Who I mean, knows? Yeah. So Julieta, along with neighbors and friends in the community where Resendez lived in Mexico, were absolutely shocked when they learned about his crimes. Hmm. Neighbors recalled him being quiet and polite, but always friendly and super sweet with the neighborhood children, which I'm not going to go on this tangent again, but it will always blow my mind that people have yeah. the capacity to murder people brutally and callously and assault them and take their things and also be great with yeah. kids. I will not ever understand that. <sighs> so in May of 2000, he went to trial for the murder of Claudia Benton. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity and made these wild claims that he was a half man, half angel who had been commissioned by the Archangel Michael to rid the <laughs> yes. earth of evil, godless humans. Uh, just. Shut up, dude. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I hate that so much. Such garbage. After a psych evaluation, he was determined to be mentally competent despite having a personality disorder 
likely caused by head trauma in his childhood. But I mean, as I've said many times throughout this episode, he was using religion as mm-hmm. an excuse to kill people. Yeah. He killed people because he wanted to kill people. Right. It was hateful. He wanted control. Yeah. He wanted to inflict fear and cause pain. So luckily his insanity plea would be denied. Yeah. Claudia Benton's husband, George, would later go on to say, quote, he had a kind of gift of really taking the best people from society, end quote, which mm-hmm. like, amen to that. Yeah. On May 18th, 2000, Angel Macharino Resendez was found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to death. He would try to appeal several times, but every time his sentence was upheld. And on June 27th, 2006, it was execution day. Mm. While Resendez declined a last meal, he did not decline giving some last words. He said, with many of the victim's loved ones in attendance, quote, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. Which like, dude, just take accountability for oh what you did gosh. already. Yeah. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience with me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You did not deserve this. I deserve what I'm getting. End quote. He was put to death by lethal injection at the age of 46 and was pronounced dead at 8.05 p.m. <sighs> George Benton would make a statement that night. He said, quote, what was executed today may have looked like a man, walked and talked like a man, but what was contained inside that skin was not a human being. Mm. This is not human behavior, but something I can only say is evil contained in human form. Yeah. A creature without a soul, no conscience, no sense of remorse, no regard for the sanctity of human life. End quote. He also spoke of the unfathomable pain of having to tell your young children that their mother had been murdered in their own home. He spoke harshly of the many institutions that took decades to take Resendez's movements and criminal actions seriously enough. Mm. All of the, you know, successful appeals that he had gotten previously in previous sentences, shortened sentences, just being deported instead of being deported and detained when he's obviously committing violent crimes. Yeah. So I don't blame him. He's calling him out. He's calling him out. Yeah. I really wanted to end this by talking about Holly and how she navigated this whole terrifying ordeal. For almost two full years after her attack, Holly lived with the lingering fear that her attacker would somehow discover that she was still alive and would come for her one day. Mm. Despite her fear and despite her deep, wide grief and trauma, Holly decided to keep pushing forward. On the day of Chris's funeral, while she was still in the hospital, her sister Heather and a friend came to visit her. She was like super sad because she couldn't go to his funeral. So they were all laughing and reminiscing about an old song called the Butterfly Song Mm -hmm. that they would always sing together when they were little kids. Yeah. So it says, quote, if I were a butterfly, I thank you, Lord, for giving me wings. If I were a robin in a tree, I thank you, Lord, that I could sing. And then it goes on. Yeah. Holly remembered it as the first moment that she'd felt some semblance of peace since the attack. Mm -hmm. Like it was just a moment where she just felt like a kid again. Yeah. So later that night, Chris's friends came to visit Holly and they brought her a program from Chris's funeral. Mm -hmm. It was full of beautiful pictures of Chris's artwork, including a piece that they'd made together. When she got to the section of the program that had the songs, Holly was floored to see the first song on the list. 
the butterfly song with the lyrics that she and her sister were happily singing together just hours before, but yeah. hadn't sang in like 20 years, <laughs> wow. like 15 years, yeah. you know, just kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So she took this as a sign that Chris was still with her, urging her to chase after joy, even in her despair. Hmm. She went back to school, which amazes me. Yeah. Wow. She got her own apartment and she got a job at an outdoor store called Philip Gall's Outdoor and Ski. She knew that Chris had a passion for the outdoors and wanted to grow a love for the outdoors as well. So while she was here, she met a man named Jacob Pendleton, a co-worker who became a fast friend. The two were really into each other and they dated for a short time, but Holly felt like she just had so much to work through that she mm-hmm. like was not ready to date. Yeah, yeah. Jacob was really sweet to her, but she was just like, it's just not actually yeah. a good time. Yeah. So I'm not going to uh, bury the lead on this. They would end up getting married Hmm. one day and they would have two sons together. One of which has the middle name Christopher. Oh, that's sweet. Which made me cry when I read that the first time. So shortly after Chris's funeral, Holly met Chris's parents. She was like nervous to meet them. Yeah. She was nervous that they were going to be mad at her, that she Mm -hmm. lived and he Mm -hmm. didn't, that she didn't do more to save him. Um, But that was like the complete opposite of what ended up happening. They immediately loved each other so very much. And uh, along with them was Chris's sister, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth told Holly that Chris had been, on the last time they talked, Chris had been going on and on about how much he liked Holly. And he ended their phone call by saying, life is good. His last words to his sister were, life is good. With the help of her family, the closure of the case against Rescinda's, the help of many friends and her faith, Holly continued pursuing healing and decided to leverage her story for the good of others. With a ton of struggle and persistence and determination to live life to the fullest in the years to come. In the years after Chris's death, Holly and Chris's loved ones started an annual reunion that they called the Life is Good group. They meet every year. I've seen the pictures and everybody's just beaming so happy. So... She also began traveling around and telling her story to others. And in 2008, she founded her nonprofit organization called Holly's House, which if you're a Patreon subscriber, that should sound familiar because it's one of our options for February giving. Oh, wow. Yeah. Holly's House is a non-residential care center that provides resources and care for women and children who have suffered from intimate violence. She has received humanitarian awards and has provided resources to over 3,000 women and children through Holly's house. She and Jacob, like I said, got back together and they were married in Florida in 2005 and they're living their own kind of like happily ever after together. Holly encourages women to take self-defense classes that will help increase your chances of fending off an attacker should you ever experience anything like she did. She went on to write an incredible book about her experience and the aftermath called Soul Survivor, the inspiring true story of coming face to face with the infamous railroad killer. And I got to say, I was expecting an incredible survival story, which I definitely got Mm. when I read her book, but almost even more so than that, I got some completely unexpected, like much needed, like encouragement. And like inspiration, she's like an incredible woman. Wow. I want everybody to read this book. So she's just amazing. So I did want to end with a quote from her book. Quote, my story offers evidence that life doesn't just go on after bad things happen. 
life can still be beautiful, meaningful, and joyous. In the days before he died, Chris's last words to his sister were, life is good. On the night we were attacked, his last words to me were, quote, everything is going to be okay. He didn't just speak these words one time. He lived them daily as an example to everyone who knew him. He was vibrantly alive and remains that way in our hearts and memories. In the end, you could say my life's purpose is to continue spreading his message to those who face their own dark hour. Life is good and everything really will be okay. And that is what I have for you this week. Wow. Um, Did I get you? Yes. I don't have anything to add because I'm just trying to not weep, weep openly, openly on, on, an, on an open mic yeah. um, or on a hot mic, I guess. But uh, wow. That is an incredible story. Holly is amazing. Everybody, yeah. I'm linking her book in the show notes. I want everybody to go read it. Yeah. Like I'm just so moved by just her existence. Yeah. She's incredible. Well, and it, it sounds like she has, she has a, not just a survivor's mindset, but like someone who would want and, and would want to help other people yeah. to have that same mindset. Totally. Like it's, it's, it's infectious and it's mm. uh, obviously it, it, it bears a lot of good fruit. Yeah. Um, just hearing the things that she's done since then. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Well, and I would also just like to point out that it's so interesting that Rosinda's claim to have done everything that he did because of his faith. Mm-hmm. And then Holly did everything that she did. Oh, And yeah. a lot of what she claims is because of Chris, of course, but also her faith. Yeah. And so it's so interesting when you see how completely differently when, when these ideas and these thoughts are applied yeah, in one way, it's just destruction. It's totally. just absolute, it's death and destruction and chaos. And then when you see these same ideas applied differently, yeah. Yeah. applied with love and with courage and mm-hmm. with kindness and with the desire to help your neighbor, yeah, you see somebody do incredible things like Holly did. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I didn't want this to be like a religion is the enemy. Yeah. I didn't want that to be the takeaway because I really think that an evil person who just wants to kill people was the enemy in this story. Yeah. But really in every victim that I was able to find anything on, these were really special people. Yeah. Sounds like it. Who impacted the people around them in incredibly massive, like immeasurable ways. Mm -hmm. And they live on because of those things. And so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Um, If you enjoyed today's episode, just make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review on that platform to help other people find this podcast. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. And you can also connect with us over on Gmail, This One Is A Doozy at gmail.com with any feedback or suggestions. And lastly, you can connect with us over on Patreon as well, my love. How and why should they do that? Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to the Patreon app or website and search this one's a doozy podcast. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. 
Um, over on Patreon, subscribers will get access to polls where you can vote on episode topics, which actually today's episode was chosen by Patreon subscribers. So thank you, oh, patrons, yeah. for that. Um, and you will get to vote each month to which organization we'll be giving to. Uh, we just have a big heart to support organizations that lift up victims of violent crime or that are just doing really remarkable things mm-hmm. in their community and beyond. And so if you would like to be part of that, go ahead and join us on Patreon. Yeah. We also are looking to add some additional perks in the near future, just as a little teaser. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can't right. tell you any more than that. That's it. That's it for now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.